Good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, it's great to be with you all this morning. Uh, if you would please turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, if you would pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, our gracious God, there is none like you. You are the source of life and light. And apart from you, we have no hope. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that you would hear our prayers this morning, open the eyes of our hearts to behold your glorious Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you would work in us that which is pleasing in your sight to make us more like Christ, to shape our minds according to your word. Speak, O oh Lord, we have come to hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. A successful man, the famous Hollywood star of the 20th century once said, Lana Turner, she said, a successful man is one who makes more money than his wife can spend. And a successful woman is one who can find such a man. <laughs> Our world revolves around these two things. We live in a world that revolves around sex and money. Money and sex. Sex and money are seen in the world around us as the key to personal happiness and pleasure. People kill for these things and people die for these things. But friends, God's word has a diametrically opposite view than our world does concerning money and concerning sex. This morning we are continuing our series through Hebrews 13. Uh, I told you last time that here we are getting into the author's practical teaching on a number of different subjects as he winds up his sermon. He spent 12 chapters laying out for us uh, glorious theology concerning who Christ is and concerning what Christ has done to save sinners. He ended chapter 12 speaking about the fact that we must offer to our great God acceptable worship according to his word with reverence and awe. And I said that that acceptable worship begins in our worship gatherings here where we assemble to hear God's word, to meet with him, that we are to come here with hearts filled with reverence and worship him as his word commands. But our worship doesn't end in this commanded gathering. No, it ought to spill out from here into all of our lives. And so in chapter 13, the author has been laying out for us what acceptable worship looks like in all of life. And it's as he continues that teaching that we come to verses 4 to 6 this morning. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 4 to 6, where the Holy Spirit, speaking through the author of Hebrews, says this, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? As we come there, we see that the doctrine of who Christ is and what Christ has done ought to shape the way that we live in this world. Remember, throughout Hebrews, we've seen again and again that Jesus is better. He is the Son of God. He is our better high priest who has offered himself as the better sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice that takes away sin forever. He is the minister in a new and better sanctuary, heaven itself, and through him we have access to God. He has inaugurated a better covenant, giving us new hearts and the forgiveness of sins so that we can draw near to God through Christ. But all of this doctrine must shape the way that we live. The author is showing us here that doctrine leads to duty. And you might remember the context of Hebrews that uh, these people who received this teaching, uh, it was originally a sermon. This, this guy who wrote it was a concerned pastor preaching to a congregation of Christians, Jewish background Christians who were tempted to go astray. They were facing persecution. They were facing afflictions for their faith on all sides. They were surrounded by a world that was filled with all kinds of immorality and greed and when you're facing a lot of affliction, you can begin to waver. They had begun to waver. Some of them had grown sluggish. They were tempted to abandon the faith. Not only that, you can forget the basics of Christian living and what it means to live as a believer in Christ, as a child of God in this world. See, of course, the society around them was filled with all kinds of evil, no different from the world that we live in. Every street corner was filled with sexual immorality. People's main goal in life was greed and their own glory. And in the midst of those trials, their trials, and living in this evil world, some of these believers were shaken. They had forgotten the basics of what it means to follow Christ. And so the author has been reminding them. We saw last week he reminded them of how brotherly love should be lived out in community. This week he's speaking to them and to us concerning these two areas of vital importance in the Christian life, marriage and money. My prayer is as we look at his teaching this morning that our hearts would grow in reverence for God, and in such confidence in who God is that we would live according to His word with regard to marriage, our marriages, and our money. In other words, our goal is that we would live lives of acceptable worship in how we think about marriage and money. So as we look at the text, you'll really see here there are two commands and for each of these commands, he gives us reasons. And those reasons are rooted in the character of God. So our first command is that we must guard the honor of marriage. We must guard the honor of marriage. Look at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge 
the sexually immoral, and adulterous. So who is responsible to hold marriage in honor, to make sure that marriage is honored? It's all of us, the church. And as one pastor has said, uh, a great measure for the spiritual health of a congregation is the health of its marriages. See, friends, God is very, very concerned about marriage, about marriage as an institution, being honored, being preserved, being treasured. He created marriage. Marriage is not something that human beings and societies decided to come up with uh, over the years of history. They decided this might be a good idea for families to get together and live like this. No, marriage was God's idea. He created it in the very beginning, uh, as we just heard read from Genesis chapter 2. It goes all the way back to God's original design and His creation. He created and designed that one man and one woman would unite to one another in covenant for life. And this is God's design as a picture, as an icon of what His relationship with His people would be. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells us that God intends marriage to be a picture of Christ and His church. That in the way that a husband and wife come together and a husband lays down his life and sacrificially loves and leads his wife and a way that the wife submits to her husband and they unite for life and display love towards one another. That's intended to be a picture of the Son of God Himself leaving His glory, coming to us, laying down His life, pouring out His blood as a sacrifice for sinners and taking to Himself a people who would be His bride, His church, and uniting to them forever. And so friends, marriage is really about the gospel. Our marriages ought to be a picture of the gospel of Christ. And so it is incumbent upon us, it is our obligation, our responsibility as individual Christians, as a church, to honor this institution of marriage, to keep holy this institution of marriage, to guard the institution of marriage, to hold up marriage before the world around us as God's good creation for mankind in, his, in this life. And to say, even as in different cultures now, we're seeing redefinitions of what marriage is, and perversions of what marriage is, or other cultures that entirely disregard God's law concerning marriage altogether, it's our responsibility as the people of God, as the church of God, to say, this is God's design. One man, one woman, for life, till death do us apart. And God has instituted this for humanity to flourish. And when we tamper with His design, or we rebel against it, it will lead to destruction and devastation. Uh, this is why our covenant as a church, the covenant that all of us have made as members of ECC, our ECC covenant says, we will honor marriage as a sacred covenant between a man and a woman. That's coming straight out of Hebrews 13. It's our responsibility to guard the honor of marriage. That means that we, the church, 
are responsible to ensure that the married couples among us honor the vows that they have taken to each other before God. It means that we as a church make a stand against such heinous evils like domestic abuse. It means that we as a church and as individual Christians that we must hold the line, the biblical line, on issues of divorce and remarriage, that we clearly declare and state what the Bible states on the permanency of the covenant bond of marriage, which biblically can only be broken for sexual immorality or abandonment. We need to hold up the Bible's teaching in that regard. More than all of those things, it means that we ought to create a culture in our congregation, brothers and sisters, where we care about our own marriages and about one another's marriages. And we're constantly seeking to grow together in holy marriage. That the marriages in this church would reflect the gospel. That ought to be our goal. That marriage as an institution would be honored in our midst. And that we care, you care, that the marriages in this church are going well. That's not just the pastor's job. That's all of our job together. Some of the difficulties and great trials of the past month ought to caution us and to remind us to be careful to honor marriage. And that includes maintaining appropriate boundaries in our friendships with those who are not our spouse, with members of the opposite sex, so that marriage is honored in our lives and we give no room for unhealthy relationships to form. It means that we also learn, that we, we should be reminded that we ought to be sensitive to one another's wisdom and reproof. That you're willing to listen when someone talks to you and tells you, hey, I'm a bit concerned about the extent of your friendship with this person who is not your spouse. You need to be able to listen to one another say things like that. We ought to have a culture where we are loving each other enough to be able to say things to that, like that to each other. Friends, if you're here this morning and your marriage is struggling one way or another, we want to help you. There is hope. By the grace of God, there is hope for your marriage. By God's grace, with good biblical counsel empowered by the word of God, with care, there really is hope. And there is help for you and for your spouse. There are many brothers and sisters here in this congregation who are living testimonies of that, who can testify of how their marriages have been helped and have grown through good pastoral care, through the love of other brothers and sisters in community, through the power of God's word working in their lives. It would be our honor, it is our honor, it is our privilege it is our deep concern to help you. So please let us know if you are struggling, if your marriage is struggling, if you're noticing cracks in, those, in, in your marriage relationship, come to us. We want to care for you. Send us an email at 
pastors at eccad.org, or even better, right after the service, please go find an elder. Find one of us elders. Come talk to us. We want to help you. And there is help. And there is grace. And there can be hope. Notice the second part of the author's command there in verse 4. Verse 4, he says, Let the marriage bed be undefiled. He's not saying don't spill coffee on your sheets. He's speaking of sexual purity. He's saying there should be no stain, nothing unclean permitted to defile the holiness of sexual union within marriage. They lived in a culture just like we live in a culture and many of our cultures where sexual immorality was no big deal. It was rampant. And in that culture, Christians particularly stood out. They shone like a light in the midst of a dark world for the way that they preserved sexual purity, where it was reserved for a husband and a wife to enjoy within marriage. And the author is saying, don't let anything stain that. No thoughts, no feelings, no images, no other persons ought to come and defile the marriage bed. And sometimes, I don't think many people recognize this, but one of the main reasons that marriages suffer, that marriages struggle, that marriages break up and fall apart, my friends, is because of struggles in the area of physical intimacy, struggles in the sexual realm. And it's, you know, the, the struggle is all the more hard because we live in a world that is completely crazy and upside down when it comes to sex. We live in a world that is utterly distorted, perverted. You know, to adapt what C.S. Lewis once said, imagine if you were to go into this theater, and you're paying money to go in there, and it's a darkened hall, and all of a sudden they put spotlight on the stage, and what you see on the stage is a big pole and a shawarma rotating round and round. And it just keeps rotating, and then a guy comes out and begins to slice meat off the shawarma onto a plate. And imagine it being full and people just watching this all day long. Or imagine like, you know, there's a YouTube video which is completely viral, 500 million views, people are watching it all the time, so you go to find out what this is and you pull it up, and again it's like shawarma roasting. 30 minutes of shawarma going round and round. If something like that were to happen, you would think, man, something's gone wrong with these people. They're crazy when it comes to food. Yet that's the way our world behaves about sex. You know, um, some years ago, there was an article published in the Huffington Post, and the headline of the article, the title was, The Internet is for Porn. And this article brought forward uh, a number of statistics that were unknown up to, until that point. It showed that porn websites, pornography websites, have an estimated 450 million unique monthly visitors every month. That's half a billion people. 
That's more than Amazon, Twitter, Netflix, all put together. And it increases by 1,200% every year, every 10 years. Pornography in the United States alone generates an estimated income of five to 13 billion dollars. And out of all the data that is transmitted on the internet, 30% of data transmitted on the internet is pornography. Our world is drowning in sexual immorality. It's a virus that has infected the inhabited world. Think about how much money is made on promises of becoming more sexy or getting more sex. Some years ago, I started going to the gym to work out, and I remember I was picking up some weights and putting them on the barbell, and there was a guy standing there, and he said, hey, man, more weights, more dates. <laughs> so... Even exercising now, the, the, the goal of exercise is more dates. That's, that's the premise of advertising. Think about how many people you know who have thrown away their lives, their families, their careers, who have thrown away everything just to satisfy the desire and drive for sex. And, and here's the thing. If you watch movies, if you watch TV, if you listen to songs... Somehow the prevailing notion in the world is that marriage is the place where sex goes to die, right? And good sex, passion, is only found between those who are unmarried, when it's something illicit. That's the message that they're teaching. And somehow we believers get confused because of this. And then we begin to think that sex is something that religious or spiritual people don't talk about or should not even think about. It's certainly that you, something that you don't come to church to hear about. Maybe even some of you had that thought this morning. Why is the pastor talking about sex? I thought I was in church. And then we begin to think it's something that's not so important in marriage anyway. Well, friends, let me break it to you. The Bible says that sex is spiritual. It speaks very clearly and frankly about these things. Sex has been designed by God. It's God's creation. Not the world's creation, not the devil's creation. God created sexual union. He's given it to us as a gift. God created sex and has given it to human beings as a gift to be enjoyed in marriage. It's a gift that binds husband and wife together. It's a gift that brings God glory. It's a gift that brings us great joy. God created sex and has given it to us for our joy. And above all others, let me tell you the truth, above anyone else, God Almighty wants you, dear Christian, wants you, dear married couples, to have a great and delightful sex life. Okay? It glorifies Him, and it honors your spouse. And that's what God wants for every married couple in this room. You see, sexual union is like, kind of like nuclear power. When nuclear power is harnessed and used in the right context, it is life-giving. It can power up an entire country. It can bring life and light. But outside of that context, nuclear power is utterly destructive. It brings destruction, devastation, and death. 
It's the same with sexual union. Within marriage, in the right context, it is life-giving, it is beautiful, it is powerful, it is glorious, but outside of that context, it brings destruction and death. No, friends, don't believe what the world says. Listen to what the Bible says. The greatest heat, passion, and enjoyment of marital intimacy, of sexual union, is found in biblical morality. In marriage between one man, one woman, for life. I love how Kevin D. Young says, sex is not something dirty that marriage makes permitted. It's something precious that marriage keeps protected. Not something dirty that marriage permits. It's something precious that marriage protects. And once again, the author of Hebrews would remind us that this is our responsibility. It's a congregational responsibility, brothers and sisters. This is part of our acceptable worship as believers and as a church that we guard holiness, that we guard sexual purity. And it's our responsibility, it's your responsibility that we care for one another walking in holiness and in purity. We are to care for one another in these ways. We are to be concerned not just for our own purity and for the purity of our marriages, but for the purity of every brother and sister in Christ with whom we've joined together as a church. So I want to speak to us and ask you some questions, brothers and sisters, this morning. Those who are married here, I want to ask you, how's your marriage bed? Is it undefiled? Have you trained your heart, your mind, your eyes to desire only your spouse? You need to train yourself for that. Have you reserved your body exclusively for the one to whom you have pledged yourself before God in covenant? Have you reserved your body and your heart for exclusively that person? I want to speak to the singles this morning. My single brothers and sisters, the command to honor marriage is for all of us. I want to ask you, are you honoring marriage? Are you keeping the marriage bed undefiled by walking in sexual purity, in holiness, in self-control? And not giving in to sexual sin or sinful fantasies. I want to speak to all of us in the room and admonish us and warn us of the great danger and evil that pornography is. There is no greater defiler of the marriage beds around the world today than this virus called pornography. It will defile and destroy not only your marriage bed, it will defile and destroy your soul. I want to speak to the men here. Brothers, if you are struggling with pornography, you need help. If this is an area of failure in your life, please come talk to us. Talk to a pastor. Reach out to us. We want to help you. 
there is grace and there is hope for you to overcome this sin in your life. And we have seen many, many brothers helped. We, I know many men I could testify in this congregation who are walking in freedom and victory over this sin because they brought it to the light and they received help. So please come talk to us. You know, in the past, we used to speak about these things only with regard to men. I know that in today's world, this is also an issue that is ubiquitous, even among women. So I want to say to you, sisters, women, hear me speaking to you in love. If this is an issue in your life, please reach out to a pastor's wife. Reach out to our women's ministry deacon, Cameron Zamora. Speak to her. You really can be helped and you really can experience freedom from this sin. Talk to us. Brothers and sisters, we are to honor marriage and keep the marriage bed undefiled. This is our corporate responsibility. And did you notice the author's reasons for that command? Did you see his warning at the end of the verse? For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. God is a righteous judge. He will bring judgment on those who violate his commands, particularly in this area. If you're here this morning and you're walking secretly in sexual sin, please be aware of this. God Almighty, our creator, is a holy, righteous judge. He knows all things. He sees all things. You might think you're hiding this from your friends, from your family, from your spouse, from your pastors, from your church. You might think you're living completely hidden and no one knows, but I want you to know God knows. And he will bring judgment upon all who violate the sanctity of marriage and on all those who live in sexual immorality. The Bible says the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. But if that's you, if you're here and you feel defiled, fallen, sexually broken, cumbered with the guilt of sexual sin, be reminded that this holy, righteous God is also a gracious, compassionate, merciful God towards sinners. And he has acted in Christ to save us from our sin That's the whole story of this letter of Hebrews, that God sent his son looking upon us in mercy, even while we were dead in our sins. He sent his own son, our Lord Jesus Christ. God the son took on flesh, the one who is fully God, able to save us, and fully man, able to be our representative, to be our substitute. He became our merciful high priest, who is like us in every way, yet without sin. Hebrews 7 says that he is holy, innocent, undefiled. He lived in perfect purity his whole life, never sinning, never failing. He is our perfect representative. He went to the cross. He offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. He shed his blood, taking upon himself the penalty and the judgment that sinners deserve, that all of us who have been sexually immoral deserve. He took upon himself the judgment due to those who are sexually immoral. And he died. He died giving himself 
as the perfect sacrifice, rose again from the dead, defeating death and sin. And now he gives full forgiveness of sins and freedom from sin to all who turn from sin and trust in him. In this great high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, there is mercy and grace to help in time of need. In this great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his perfect sacrifice, there is complete cleansing. He has offered himself once for all to take away sin forever. And our defiled hearts can be cleansed made spotless, pure, and clean by this glorious Christ. So I want to call you and invite you on his behalf to come to him. He stands with open arms, welcoming you to turn from your sin, to flee to him. He is able to sympathize with your weakness, even with your temptation. And in him, there's grace and mercy for sinners and help in time of need. So flee to him today. Dear non-Christian friend, if you're here, flee to Christ. Receive mercy and grace as you've never known it before. Friends, in Christ, we have freedom from sin, but it begins with confessing our sin and bringing it to the light. So that's our first command there in Hebrews 13 that we must offer acceptable worship to God by guarding the honor of marriage. Uh, Our second command that the author gives us is another important earthly concern. Not only must we guard the honor of marriage, we must also guard our hearts from money. We must guard our hearts from money. Did you look at verses Five and six there. Look at verse five. He says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. I'm going to share with you uh, the words of the great teacher concerning money. Her name is Shania Twain. She says, we live in a greedy little world that teaches every little boy and girl to earn as much as they can possibly and then turn around and spend it foolishly. We've created a credit card mess. We spend the money that we don't possess. Our religion is to go and blow it all, so it's shopping every Sunday at the mall. All we ever want is more, a lot more than we had before, so take me to the nearest store. Shania Twain is right. We live in a world that's obsessed with money, with stuff, with the accumulation of things. All we ever want is more, a lot more than we had before. And dear friends, this is a particular danger for us who live in this country As expat Christians in the UAE, the fact is most of us who moved here, if you're honest, why did you move here? Most of us moved here to make more money than we were making back home. On the one hand, there's nothing wrong with making money. And there's nothing wrong with growing wealthy and stewarding your wealth well, receiving wealth as a gift from God. But the author of Hebrews wants to guard us 
from the dangerous mindset of greed and accumulation, of having never enough to satisfy. He wants to guard us, not from money, but from the love of money. That desire for more. The Bible describes it as the root of all evil. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, a trap, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money can lead you away from the faith, can destroy your soul. This is why, by the way, at ECC, we strongly teach against the so-called health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that is promoted around the world by a number of false teachers, false teachers like Benny Hinn, Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar, T.D. Jakes, Joyce Mayo, others in this part of the world like Chris Oyakulme. They falsely teach that God has promised and guaranteed financial wealth and riches, monetary blessing to anyone who just has enough faith. They actually go directly against the teaching of the Bible by encouraging people to love money, to set our hearts on money and wealth and obtaining it, and they say, you, you will if you just have enough faith. Whereas the authors of Scripture and the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we are warned and admonished to keep our lives free from the love of money, free from greed, to say the Lord is enough for me and to put our trust in Him and His promises. You, you want to guard your heart from the love of money? It's one of the great ways and one of the best ways that Scripture guides us and leads us to keep ourselves free from the love of money. One of the best ways to do that biblically is to generously give it away. Generously, sacrificially, regularly give from what God gives to you, give it back to Him. Why has God ordained giving as an act of worship in Scripture? Why are we commanded to give generously, sacrificially, faithfully, regularly to our local church, to God's purposes? Well, God in His grace and mercy uses this gift of giving, us giving away what He gives us, He uses that to train our hearts to love Him more than we love money. Keep our lives free from the love of money. Notice what else he says there. It's not just don't love money, don't be greedy. He says in verse 5, be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. You know, in the 17th century, uh, there was a pastor named Jeremiah Burroughs who wrote a classic book, and it was called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Contentment is a jewel. 
It's precious. It's a precious virtue. It's also rare. It's hard to find. There's a story told in ancient times of this king who uh, was afflicted with a great sickness. And as he consulted different doctors and different wise men, how he would be cured of this sickness because it would lead to death, the wise men in his kingdom told him, you can be cured of this sickness if you wear the shirt of a contented man. So immediately, like all these stories, there begins a search throughout the kingdom. They're searching and searching for the man who is content because they want to get his shirt for the king. They go all the way to the edges of the kingdom. They find nobody. Every single person they meet is discontent. And then finally, on the outer edges of the kingdom, they find this one man who is truly content. But he had no shirt. (laughs) Friends, contentment doesn't come from what we have. It comes from who we have. So let's look at our hearts this morning a little bit. Brothers and sisters, let's do some more heart surgery. Here are some questions to examine your heart and examine whether contentedness marks your life, whether your heart is at rest in God and His promises. I want to ask you, what are your dreams and ambitions? Is God in the picture? Is His glory your primary pursuit? Or is your primary pursuit financial security? Earning more money. The never-ending drive for more, more, more. A lot more than we had before. When you think about your family, your children, parents in the room, I want to ask you what picture do you have in your mind when you think, I want to raise up successful kids? By what standards would you consider your kids successful in society? What do you desire the most right now? If if, if the Lord were to tell you, you can have one thing, what would that be? What are you hoping for? What are you driving for? Is it a better job? A better career? Better possessions, a better bank account, a better life? Do you find yourself constantly craving for earthly pleasures, possessions, things that you don't have? Do you desire outward prosperity more than inner godliness? What are the primary factors that drive your life? Perhaps as you look into your heart, even as I've been asking these questions, you realize, wow, I am a pretty discontent person. Maybe the Lord is convicting you right now, I, I do fixate, that you do fixate a bit too much on money, on possessions, on the things of this world, the things of this life. You say, yes, they consume me. 
this rare jewel of Christian contentment. I'm so weary. I'm so tired. Where can I find this rare jewel of Christian contentment? Well, brothers and sisters, there's hope for us. Look at what the text says in verses 5 and 6. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We will be content when we are less concerned about what we have and more concerned about who we have. We will be truly content when we know that we truly have God, the Lord, our Savior, our Creator, our refuge, our ever-present help in times of need. The Lord has promised that He will never leave us nor forsake us. The Lord has promised to be our helper. And when He is our helper, we have no need to fear the trials of this life because Jesus is enough. And, and you think about, again, the context of Hebrews. You think about this little church to whom this sermon was originally preached. They were constantly afflicted with storms, with trials. The police had come into some of their houses and taken away all their things. They had lost it. Some of them were in prison. They're living in the world where everyone was getting richer and, and, and going up and up. And here they are, the persecuted, downtrodden, Afflicted in society, rejected by all and despised. And in the midst of all of those trials, as they lose their earthly possessions because of their faith, they're faced with one question. I've brought this question back again and again as we've looked through Hebrews. They were faced with one question. Is it really worth it to be a Christian? The author of Hebrews answers that question with one word. Christ. We have Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have Christ. The one who lived for us the perfect life the one who went to the cross, took upon himself our judgment, our shame, who died for us, the one who bled for you, who rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and right now is praying for you, the one who promises you that he will carry you to the end. He says, you have me. And even now, no matter how much you're struggling or suffering or wavering, he says, come to me. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our glorious Savior, our great high priest, who always lives to intercede for us, who has put away our sin by his sacrifice. We thank you that you have promised you will never leave us nor forsake us. And so, Lord, may we live lives of worship 
in every area of life because of who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.